Hello, everyone. Let me welcome you to our Equip Workshop. My name is John Ewart. I'm the director of the Southeastern Center for Pastoral Leadership and Preaching, and uh, we're just so glad that you could join us again. I hope that you've looked at some of the other resources on the, uh, the resource page here on the website. Uh, we've uh, filmed quite a bit over the last couple of years and hope that you've enjoyed those resources. Get those out to your people. Uh, we're also obviously trying to use these for some of our classes, and uh, we're thankful that you could join us today. Today we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper. Very important topic, and it's a topic that leads us, I think, into a lot of other uh, interesting discussions that you'll, you'll hear us take part in today. So I teach missions, evangelism, and leadership. My background is local church pastor, though, 20 years in a local church, church planter, missionary. And so I'm going to be probably focusing more on some of the practical, um, methodological aspects of the supper but we have some great scholars here. I always appreciate the guests. We always try to include faculty and friends with us on panels for these workshops. And so I'm thankful to have Dr. Stephen Ecker with us and Dr. Keith Whitfield. I'm going to let them uh, tell you a little bit about themselves. We, we like for those who use these resources to meet our faculty, get to know them and understand them. Hopefully you'll want to come and study with them more and read what they write and, and, and discuss. So Dr. Ecker, tell us a little bit about you, who what your title is, what you teach, your background a little. My name is uh, Stephen Ecker. Uh, I'm an assistant professor of church history and Reformation studies here formally at the school, uh, which means I mostly teach church history classes as well as historical theology. Um, I was uh, originally raised in a Methodist context, so I've come to my Baptist convictions uh, at a later uh, at a later stage, uh, come to embrace those, so I wasn't necessarily raised in a Baptist context. Uh, as well, I have a wife, uh, four daughters, uh, and have been uh, gathered together with the church at Open Door for about 15 years now here locally in Raleigh-Durham. Good to have you. Thanks for joining us, Steve. And then also, Keith uh, Whitfield, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, my name is Keith Whitfield. I am Assistant Professor of Christian Theology here at Southeastern. Uh, I have about 10 years of combined pastoral experience. So I pastored about, about eight years before I came to, uh, to teach here, and married, and two kids, and uh, I attend Imago Day Bad, uh, Church here in Raleigh. So. It's really good to have some, some students here with us and professors with us, too. It's always helpful to have folks here with us live, and we'll interact with them as well off camera, but we just want to dive in. We don't want to waste any time. So we're talking about the Lord's Supper. We may call it different things. We can talk about that as well. We generally begin these discussions with a look at biblical foundations, theological issues and principles, and so let's, let's dive into that. Why do we participate in the Lord's Supper? What is the Lord's Supper? What does the Lord's Supper mean from a biblical, theological perspective? Let's start with that. Dr. Whitfield, I'm going to look at you as our theology guy to begin that. Okay. And let's just see where that takes us. Well, there's a couple of key texts in the New Testament and a Old Testament passage or passages to sort of give us some Old Testament context for this thing we call the Lord's Supper. Uh, some of the key texts are, are found in the Gospels and the ones we think of is that's when Jesus gathered with his disciples um, before he's arrested and crucified. Um, it's uh, the supper that he, that he set a, apart for his disciples to experience with them. As a matter of fact, he sent a few ahead to prepare for it. And then he gathers with his disciples, and he gives some instructions even in that. Uh, we see some instructions even in those passages. And then probably the most thorough in terms of exposition and application to the church, we, we find in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we find uh, echoes of what's taking place in the Passover, even as early in 1 Corinthians 5. 
Um, in particular, 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul deals with the supper of those who are idol worshipers, the Passover and the Lord's Supper, and he brings them all together and talks about the significance of communion there. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, where he deals with some of the issues going on in the church in Corinth as it relates to practicing the Lord's Supper. So this really provides the foundation uh, for us from the New Testament perspective. And we get a lot of really rich teaching and instruction. And as we pull out some of the theological things, we'll come back to these texts and talk about those. But then the Passover really is a thing that's in the rearview mirror or, or in the background of this. Um, and it's Jesus who sort of hangs the ordination of this practice on the Passover because he does it around the Passover meal. So this brings a connection for us, and we could talk more about how it's related and why that's significant, but certainly what took place in the Exodus um, and that meal that the Israelites celebrated prior to the Exodus is sort of it's in the rearview mirror. It's the context for us thinking about this thing. Sure, and I don't want us to I don't want us, want us to neglect that Old Testament backdrop because because I, I think it's actually in in the actual practice of the supper I think it's important for us to to remind people of of what this actually represented in the Old Testament perspective. So so I don't want us to to lose that in this discussion today. So that that's really helpful. One of the things that we're going to get into too in just a minute I think is <clears throat> Dr. Ecker is is how the church throughout history from the very first church forward how they took these biblical principles and these biblical passages and the, the number of interpretations and, and, and manifestations of their interpretations toward the supper over the years. And so we're certainly going to get into that. Before we do that, let's lay some theological principles out here. Let's talk about a few things that will help us. And so what, what are some of the, the primary theological pieces that we as pastors and as church leaders today we want our people to make sure they're getting as we're observing the supper together. So we'll start there, and then I want you to dive in on this too. Yeah, because some of the theological questions that we have, and Dr. Ecker and I were talking about this last week in preparation for this, some of the theological questions that are on the table for us right now really come out of the historical context. Um, but if we're just going to start from the biblical context, uh, we'll go back to the connection to the Passover. And I think there's at least four themes that um, come out of the connection with the Passover that provide this sort of theological framework or theological context for us to think about the significance of the supper. And those themes are sacrifice. So it represents, it, um, it demonstrates for us that a sacrifice took place and that we're participating in this um, sacrificial meal um, that represents the sacrifice on our behalf. Uh, that something takes place that we call a covenant. Because in the Passover, what you see is God is remembering the covenant that he's made to Abraham. And he's about to renew that covenant with the people of Israel after he brings them out of Exodus. And then we see Jesus says, this is the cup of the new covenant. So Jesus connects it to covenant. So covenant is taking place. So the, the theology of covenant, the significance of that for the relationship between God and his people is at the heart of the Lord's Supper. And in addition to that, what we see with covenant is two things take place. Both of them are relationships, but you have a relationship between God and his people, but you also have a relationship among God's people. So it forms a family. It forms a relationship. Um, and then uh, finally, covenant biblically, um, early on, we know that it's looking forward to something. Um, so in the covenant with Abraham, I'm looking forward to the day that the nations are blessed by your kindred. 
You know, I'm looking forward to the day that your kindred have the land, that they're as plentiful as the stars. So the covenants are always looking forward to something. And what does Jesus say? This supper that I'm celebrating with you today, we're looking forward to something, to the day that I celebrate it with you. So it's at least those four theological themes that provide a theological foundation for us and a framework to think about what the supper means. Do you have any, any addition you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the language of covenant is important here, going all the way back to um, thinking about the Passover, the Old Testament context, but then also the institution in light of thinking about the new covenant. And so I think when you look at it from a historical perspective, over the narrative of 2,000 years, one of the interesting important questions that comes up then is in terms of what we do with the supper, with the covenant, is really the emphasis in the practice of the Lord's Supper, is this really covenantally in terms of what God is doing in the actual supper practice or what we are doing? Because in the, in the relationship language of the covenant, this is, this is sort of a two-way street, right? God is acting to provide the covenant. He is promising certain things in the covenant. But also as well, there is a human participation, a human involvement as well. And so contextually then, one of the major overarching questions here is then, what is the focus in terms of who is doing something covenantally in all of this? Which is, is it, is it God who's doing something in this supper or is it us? And that's one of the major dividing points then historically amongst uh, different confessional heritages. Now, I would, I would add to this, sort of that theological framework. This is really interesting when it comes to the Lord's Supper is all the terms that we use to, to speak about it. And these are almost, we, we kind of have our favorite term and we don't think about the other ones really. But if we look across um, sort of the, the body of, of Christ writ large, the ecumenical church, and the different ways that people refer to it, we learn something that there are, this thing represents a, sort of a robust uh, expression. And not only that, you find that those expressions are found in Scripture. So the Lord's Supper is used. The Eucharist or the Thanksgiving is used. It's used in a verbal form, but it's used to describe what's taking place. Communion is used. And so all of these are not just terms that we hang on this event that the church takes place in. No, these are theological terms that helps us understand what these things, what this thing represents and what's taking place. Yeah, and I would also add, with the terminology there, I think I'm glad that you brought this up, Dr. Whitfield. The terminology there, those terms come sort of laden with ideas and connotations. And so even the term that we use then historically oftentimes uh, betrays or tips your hand as to what it is that you are thinking about in terms of the practice. And so like in the early church, they chose very early on to speak of it in terms of the Eucharist. Uh, they use the Greek term meaning thanksgiving, but later on uh, in the history of the church, you'll start to see them use terms like uh, the mass, which comes from uh, the, the Latin designation missal, which really related to the way in which it was practiced. It was done at the dismissal point when they were letting catechumenants leave because they had not been given full participation in, uh, in, the, in the practice of the church. But then also once we get to the Reformation, they start using Latin terms like, com, uh, like communio or where we get the English term communion. Uh, and as well, individuals like Zwingli, they will choose uh, the term Abendmahl, which is from the German, which simply means supper. And so even the language that they use, it tips their hand as to really what it is that they're wanting to convey or the ideas that they think that are really at the heart of the supper itself. Yeah, that really is interesting. And I'm not sure that in today's, in today's church life, 
we would think that much about the term, and I, I think it's really helpful. In fact, what a, what a great thing for a pastor to maybe include in his teaching decisions. You know, we, we traditionally at this church have called this this. Uh, why? You know, why do we call it that? I, I think the covenant language, too, is going to become really important in, in some of our practical discussions coming up to where when we start talking about covenant, who can participate in the supper? You know, even in local church life, closed, open, all these terms we use about the Lord's Supper uh, and how that relates to the concept of covenant and and covenant membership, et cetera, those kinds of things. That'll be interesting when we get back to it. So, so let's let's do a, let's do a little march through history. Uh, let's let's talk about the various views of the supper uh, throughout history and and kind of why baptistically. Perhaps we've evolved to where to where we are. So why don't you kick us off with that? Yeah. So I think that um, you know Dr. Whitfield here mentioned the the biblical text, and that's key to understand sort of the initial development because the early church is simply doing their best to follow the practices they have with the New Testament. Now, mind you, they have the writings of the New Testament. They don't have the canon of the New Testament because the canon hasn't been closed and won't be for several hundred years. But for them, they're simply trying to follow through with the instruction. And so the immediate context of, for instance, the Matthew 26 passage is this is a part of the the Passover meal. It's a part of uh, supper. And so they observed it in a large meal context. It wasn't just simply an isolated part of worship and a small meal. Uh, It was framed in this this large meal that was typically done at the end of their gathering. Uh, They would gather together for worship on Sundays, but then at the sort of as the close and the crescendo of all of that, they would participate in a very large meal. You know, we think about even in our context, think about sort of like a potluck. That's in essence what they're doing. They're gathering together for a larger meal. And yet in the midst of all of that, there was a moment at which they would pause. And there was the observance of a special time, a special time that was devoted and consecrated to observing, uh, to observing the elements. And so that's really what we see sort of the first century. Now, there is a huge shift that takes place between the first and the second centuries. Uh, the church does something interesting in that the church begins to, uh, begins to delay baptism for believers. And part of that ties in with the introduction of the idea of, of the catechism, that the church wanted new members who are coming into the church to do two things. One, to actually learn understanding and new, a nuanced understanding of the faith sort of intellectually to get right doctrine, but also then to test the veracity of their faith. And so as a result, they, these catechumenates were given sort of a, a, temporary, uh, you know, a temporary membership in the church. But the one thing they were not able to do was to actually observe uh, the supper. That was something that was, that was set aside for the congregation as a whole. And so naturally what begins to happen here within the practice itself is where it is initially framed within the context of that large fellowship meal, you can't do that anymore because you, you have these, you know, sort of temporary members, these trial members as you were. And so what naturally happens is the, the supper begins to be separated from that larger meal. And just think about it. If you have the worship celebration... And then you've got over here this, this, this casual gathering of fellowship. The supper itself is observed in the middle of that. You can almost see the way that naturally there is a building of a crescendo type effect. There is, there is a sense in which worship is beginning to climax at this point 
in terms of the observance of the supper. And that really leads to sort of a late patristic and a medieval way of thinking that the mass itself or, or the supper, the observance of these, these elements, becomes for a long time, for hundreds and hundreds of years, it becomes the centerpiece of worship. It becomes the focal point uh, of the liturgy, if you will. Uh, just thinking about the change then into, you know, from the, the, the early part of the church then. You, you know, it's interesting because if, if we don't learn anything else about the Lord's Supper in this experience, uh, you know, of course, I'm a missions guy, so I'm always thinking of contextualization and context. But to, just to recognize that how, how much local church practices today vary, and yet this impact of history, just the idea of moving from this large meal to this aspect of only those who have gone through catechism, only certain members can participate. Just that move right there. We didn't know anything else about history. Just the, the way, and so, and so where we are in local church practice in that same continuum back and forth, uh, you know, that's really fascinating. It's interesting how, how everything we do has, has a context back there. There's a reason why churches do what they do for various reasons. So, so as we move into this, this next phase, so, so where, does this, where does this concept of the Mass and of, of what we call transubstantiate, where does this come from? Where, where does this theological piece and history piece come from? So very early on in the church, um, they're reading the New Testament. Matthew 26 and 26, Jesus says, this is, is my body. It's also in Luke chapter 22 and verse 19. They're trying to follow the text of Scripture. So they're simply affirming that the meal that they're observing is Jesus' body, but, but don't look too much into that. It's, it's an unnuanced way of thinking about it. They're simply affirming it there without really needing to you know, establish an argument for it, if you will. Now, we do have in, in roughly 155 A.D., we've got the writings of one of the early apologists named Justin Martyr. And Justin Martyr gives us a great picture of the, the worship practices of the church in the middle of the second century. And in that, in describing what takes place with the, with the supper itself, uh, he uses a very interesting term there to denote what is going on there. It's the, it's the, uh, it's the Greek term from which we get the, the word metabolism. And so what he's actually saying there, and the, 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 the translation into English is, that what is going on there is that there is a transmutation. Now, he's not using transubstantiation. Don't, don't think in terms of those. But what he is recognizing is something is going on. They are simply recognizing that what they are observing here, this is not just common bread. In fact, that's what Justin Martyr says. This isn't common bread, and it's not common wine. There is something different, and it's based really upon what Jesus has said, that this would be his, his body. Now, uh, in essence, uh, what, you, what you really have is just sort of this unarticulated, really undefined way of thinking about the presence of Christ uh, in the supper until really you get to the ninth century. And in the ninth century, uh, there are, uh, there, there's a certain monk who sets forth this, uh, this idea that, uh, that the, the presence of Christ in the supper is actually a, a, real, a real thing. And he articulates uh, this, this idea that there really is a change that takes place. In fact, um, what this monk says is there's a mystical change. It's mysterious in the sense that you and I don't discern it. So we don't actually uh, taste and, and of blood and flesh, but it is a real mystical, tangible 
uh, change. And uh, what, what that monk says really uh, takes hold in history itself. And eventually then, so that's the, the middle of the, the ninth century, eventually the Roman Catholic Church will begin to articulate and affirm this understanding, partially based upon the text itself, but then partially based upon the import of Greek philosophical ideas. And so during the Middle Ages, you get the introduction of Aristotelian thought. And with Aristotelian thought and the, the writings of particularly Aquinas, now all of a sudden the Roman Catholic Church has the categories, they have the way in which to think about how this change actually takes place. And so what Aquinas and other uh, medieval Roman Catholics will, will come to affirm is that what takes place in this change with the consecration, and this, this goes back to that earlier monk, the consecration creates a change, but there is a distinction between the substance and the accidents of something. Now, this is a really Aristotelian way of thinking, a philosophical thing. The substance of something is the essence. This speaks to ontology. Bread has the ontology of being bread. Uh, the accidents of something speaks to the external form or the manifestation. So bread has a certain feel, it has a certain taste, it has a certain touch. And what Aquinas and what the other Roman Catholic theologians during the period would come to affirm is that the change once applied in the consecration, that the, the bread and the wine become ontologically in substance the actual body and blood of Christ. The accidents, the external manifestations, what you and I discern, they ultimately remain the same. And so this is the high point of the Middle Ages. And then, of course, in 1215 A.D. at the Fourth Lateran Council, this becomes official Roman Catholic uh, doctrine, official Roman Catholic theology, and would remain in place for several hundred years until the Reformers would finally begin to challenge this position. Right. And so even in, even in today's world, in many of our churches where we are reaching former Roman Catholics, uh, and others, you know, the, these are discussions that still need to take place because our church members <clears throat> have Catholic friends, or they're working, have Catholic colleagues, or they're folks who are former Catholics who are sitting in our, you know, in our worship services and and observing uh, the Lord's Supper, or, or observing us observe the Lord's Supper, and uh, and so these are still discussions that have impact today, and so. Uh, the Reformation takes place. We get a couple of di more different views that come out of the Reformation at that point yeah. then. Yeah, so th those initial ideas from that, that monk, Radbertus, that, that there is the consecration and there is ultimately this change that takes place, that affirmation is actually rooted in something much earlier, which is the writings of Augustine. And what Augustine has said is that, that ultimately the, the, the sacrament, the, the efficacious nature of the sacrament, it is really taken place when the sacrament is observed, when, the, when it's based upon the act itself through proper ordination. And so ultimately what you get then is you get this idea that only priests can provide the, the efficacious sacraments, only priests are able to provide this transubstantiation and almost immediately when you get to the Reformation, the Reformers begin to look in the text of Scripture, and there's a number of things that bother them with this. Uh, specifically for Luther, uh, for instance, Luther's position uh, is very close to Roman Catholicism. It's typically referred to as consubstantiation. 
Transubstantiation itself, the term just means across substances. And you've got the idea of Jesus over here moving across substances to ontologically take on that role of the essence in the supper. Uh, what consubstantiation denotes is really the idea of, uh, from the Latin term, together. And so it's really like you've got two things. You've got Jesus and you've got the bread. And those two things come together in one entity. It's where both with Luther and the Lutheran tradition, they would commonly refer to uh, this as being, in, that Jesus being in, with, and under the elements itself. Some, sometimes in a pejorative way, non-Lutherans would say that what, what Luther has done here is he's got Jesus sort of hanging on the back of the wafer, holding on for dear life in all of this. But the big thing for Luther is Jesus is there. He's corporally present in a very real sense but the thing that he does not like is the way in which Rome has argued for this, right? Rome has imported Greek Aristotelian thought into this. And for Luther, something as important as the presence of Christ, it should be based on something else. If nothing else, it should be rooted in God's word. And so Luther believes really that Jesus is there if for no other reason because he said he would be there. Because at the institution, he said, this is my body. And so he believes on the basis of the promise. Jesus promised to be there. And so ultimately, uh, he would be present in, in the elements. Now, that differs greatly from one of the other mainline reformers, which is Huldrych Zwingli. Zwingli in 1529 uh, meets with Luther and a number of the other Swiss reformers, uh, Philip Melanchthon, uh, Johannes Echolampadius, they meet uh, at Marburg, which is located geographically in the center of Germany, and they begin to hash out Protestant doctrine. They're trying to, as the Reformation is beginning to take root, it's still very fragile in its nature, and they need a, they need a political alliance. They need friends. And in the midst of all of this, they come to agreement on 14 of the 15 major points of doctrine but one thing remains elusive, and that is this question of the supper. And more specifically, how are we to understand this language of presence? When Jesus says, this is my body, what does he mean there? For Zwingli, uh, he simply cannot affirm what Luther has argued. When Zwingli looks at Luther, what he sees is Roman Catholicism. You can articulate it and nuance it all you want. The fact that he is corporally present there, he's bodily present for Zwingli uh, is something that doesn't sit well with him. Part of this is the way in which Zwingli reads the Bible. It's a different hermeneutic. And so for him, when he comes to those passages, he wants to get at what we typically refer to as the, the literal sense of Scripture. He's following a fourfold way of thinking about peeling back the layers of Scripture to get to the meaning. And the literal sense for Zwingli speaks to historical context which means in its historical context, you have at least two problems. The first problem is, if Jesus is saying historically that he is present there, how does he do that at the institution of the supper, right? Because he's sitting there with the, with the disciples. How can it be his body when he's sitting there? And so for, for Zwingli, historically, that, that does not lead to a right interpretation. Not to mention the fact that, let's just be honest with this, Dr. Ewart, the thought of eating flesh is pretty disgusting. Not only is it disgusting, that is something that is very, it's a pagan idea. And so if for no other reason than that, Zwingli is wanting to 
push back against this notion. In fact, uh, in the language of Marburg, Echolampadius uh, brings up how disgusting this is. And, and Luther, in only the way that Luther can rebut, would simply say that uh, I would eat dung if God commanded it. It's based upon the promise. It's based upon, uh, ultimately, the command. But there is something that's really even deeper than just this question of is he present or is he not. I will never forget the first time I heard this. I thought, this is the dumbest debate I've ever heard. Are you kidding me? You guys can't come together on whether Jesus is there or not. But there are deep-seated Christological questions at the heart of this debate. And so for Zwingli, the natural sense of Scripture doesn't allow him to affirm the bodily presence of Christ in the supper. Why? Because for him, Jesus is bodily seated at the right hand of the Father. And so for him, he simply cannot affirm that. While Luther, according to his doctrine of ubiquity, would just simply affirm that Jesus is actually able to be in more places than one. That's part of his divine nature. He is omnipresent, as it were. Yeah, that, that's, that's interesting. So, uh, you know, again, I, I, I think one of the things that I hope that those who use these resources will get out of this discussion this far is just how deeply we need to be thinking about what the supper really means. I, and, and, of course, I, I, again, I'm going to be kind of the practical guy. You know, I'm always going to bring this back to local church life. Something that always disturbed me, and I may say this again later, Something that always just still disturbs me. I guess it just, I don't know what it, but it, it bothers me when I see the observance of the Lord's Supper as just kind of this add-on. It's, it's, just, it's, it's just something that's thrown in there because it, it's something we do all the time or it's, it's just, the you know. And, and that's why it, I think there are big questions, Keith that we're going to have to talk about some of the theological issues that they are really practical, that's applied theology. In other words, when can we observe the Lord's Supper? Should we observe the Lord's Supper just anywhere and everywhere? And who, who, can, who can lead or officiate over the Lord's Supper? Are we just going back to a priestly Catholic perspective, or is, this, is there something more there that we need to be thinking about? Do the elements matter? You know, do, do the symbols of, of the symbol matter? Does the type of bread matter? Does what we're drinking matter? Do these things matter? Can't, should we do the Lord's Supper at the youth retreat? Should we do the Lord's Supper at a wedding? Should we do the Lord's Supper as, as just a part of any service, any time, any place? Does it matter? Is it that big a deal? Is it not that big a deal? And, and, and these, are, these are huge issues that, that I think not only, not only are theologically important, but, but gang, one of, the, one of the aspects of my life is I'm a church consultant for many, many years, and I deal a lot with churches in conflict and pastors, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, thousands of them at this point. And, and, and guys get in trouble over these things. Um, I have seen churches split over the type of bread used in the Lord's Supper. That's seriously. It was that important to some of them and so not important to others. And the way it was so poorly handled, it's not the, the, the bread isn't the culprit, it was the way it was handled. But it was so poorly discussed, taught, articulated, and handled that it led to a church split. And so these, these are really important issues. So, so what are, think about some of the theological principles. What are some of these things? What are some of, the, some of the concepts that we may continue in the next session when we come to back together? But let's just talk about that before we close this session out. Yeah, you know, Going back to the biblical text, I think one of the 
one of the leaders for us in thinking about some of the theological stuff as it leads to practical is what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 11, um, where he is criticizing the church in Corinth for how they're practicing the supper. And he says, he says that you're doing it in an unworthy manner, and there's probably some personal implications um, for that. And we could probably tie it back to 1 Corinthians 5 and say, yes, there's personal implications. But I think we exclusively apply that to personal implications. Are there any unrepentant sin in your life? Is there, is there any unrepentant sin in your life? I don't think that's what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 11. I think what he's getting at is are you practicing the supper as a corporate gathering in a way that honors what the supper means and that honors who you are as the people of God? Because some had raced to the supper because they were more privileged than others, left the others in the field, and began partaking of the supper early. And this is what Paul says, in doing that, you despise the body. Um, so this is one of the leading sort of theological reflections for us. Do we practice the supper in such a way that we honor the body of Christ? Do we understand what we're doing here? This is a symbol of a sacrifice how God has fulfilled his covenant with his people. He is forming a people that, is, that, that are living as aliens and exiles in this world, waiting for their king to return. And do we practice the supper in a way that honors that? I think this is the leading theological point that helps us inform our practice. Yeah, that's really important. I want us to come back to this in practice. So here's what we want to do. What we're going to do is we're going to, to kind of end session one right here. Uh, with some of these foundational issues, we're going to kind of reset, come back for session two. So come back and watch session two, because what we want to do in session two then is take this historical theological perspective, this biblical theological perspective, and apply it to real practice and talk about real-life scenarios in local church life. W what do we do if? What are we going to do when? Uh, how are we going to do this? And come back in this next session and really talk about and apply some of this uh, theology to life. So you come back for session two and uh, continue to join us. Thanks.